You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But before we begin, here are a couple of other podcasts that we think you should try. There's a good chance that you, yeah, you, are interested in true crime and all things creepy and weird. If I'm right, then there's also a good chance you might find my podcast, The Asian Madness Podcast, interesting. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much everywhere else. It's true crime, it's dark, it's morbid, and it's weird. Come explore the dark side of Asia with me. Because let's face it, Asia is just as crazy as the rest of the world. When you think of the Ohio Valley, you may not associate it with evil, but unfortunately, evil is something that no place is safe from. From the crimes that made national headlines to the ones that people seem to have forgotten, Every victim deserves to be remembered. Join me as we go through the cases of the Ohio Valley. You can find the Ohio Valley True Crime Podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and most podcast services. Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of the Forgotten News Podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Jim. My name is Kit. We are your hosts. Yep. Wow. 15 episodes. That's kind of a big deal. Especially since we are getting really close to the first anniversary of the launch of this podcast on July the 19th. Hey, Jim. Uh, yes, Kit? I have a question for you. And what is your question? (laughs) What do Jack the Ripper and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Um, I don't know. What? They both have the same middle name. (laughs) 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 Well, listeners... As you might have already guessed, this episode will feature a hidden or lost story from history in regard to either Winnie the Pooh 
or Jack the Ripper. So, here is what we are going to do. Kit, do you have a coin? Maybe in your pocket or your purse or somewhere nearby? Hmm, hold on. I'll look. Yes, I have a coin. I've got it in my hand. Now, just take your coin, flip it up in the air just a little bit, and let it fall on the desk. If it lands with heads up, then our featured story on this episode will be the one with Winnie the Pooh. Otherwise, if it's tails, the featured story will be the one with Jack the Ripper. Hey, Jim. Let's make this a little more interesting. How about whichever one is the losing story, we will rip up that script and we will never do it. Oh, wow. That's a heck of a bet. Okay. Let's do it. Toss your coin. <laughs> okay. Here goes. Well, what is it? It's Tails. So our featured story on this episode will be the one with Jack the Ripper. And, just as we agreed, I'm going to rip up the Winnie the Pooh script. I'm also deleting it from my computer as we speak. But listeners... Before we move on to our featured story, we are going to mention a couple of small items. First, we are very excited to have gotten over a thousand downloads since our last episode. So we have now reached a total of over 13,000 downloads overall. Thank you listeners for bringing us to those incredible numbers. Also, We've gotten some really positive feedback to our new segment featuring old-timey police blotter and court news columns from 19th century newspapers. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Next, because our featured story on this episode will definitely touch on a few topics that might be emotionally upsetting for some of you, we will give a brief warning before we launch into our story. Kit, I hate to interrupt, but I want to mention something real quick before we give that warning. Here's the thing. In addition to giving a warning to our listeners about any potentially troubling subjects in our featured story, we will now also be giving a warning any time that our new segment, the police blotter and court news, might happen to include any subject that could be distressing to some listeners. We will give that warning right before the start of that segment. Okay, Kit, I will now turn the show back over to you to tell our listeners about anything in the featured story that might 
possibly be an issue of concern. Warning. This episode will include brief descriptions of violence and tragedy, including murder and prostitution. Women were the victims. There will also be descriptions of wrongdoing and negligence by police. However, this is not a podcast that indulges in gruesome or gory details or foul language in regard to any topic. But even so, if you think that hearing about these things could possibly cause you to have a negative emotional reaction, then this episode might not be something you should listen to. Finally, the story that is being featured is definitely not recommended for children, since it could be upsetting or even frightening to young ears. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Thank you, Kit. And, with all that having been said, on with the show! Our story begins in 1888 in London, England. Are you sure that's where the story begins? Well, since we said that Jack the Ripper would be a key person in our story, I thought we should first say a little bit about him. Okay, but I think we should tell our listeners that nearly all of the story will actually take place in the U.S., not in the U.K. I don't want anyone turning off our podcast because maybe they've heard the story of Jack the Ripper on a thousand other podcasts, books, movies. (laughs) That's a good point. I agree, 100%. Thank you, Jim. So, with that, clarification, I will begin with a short bit of information about Jack the Ripper, and then, from there, we will move on to the actual underlying story of this episode. Specifically, if you keep listening, you will hear the story of the murder of Shakespeare in New York City in 1891, and the connection between that murder And Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Are you confused? (laughs) Please don't be. It's a really good story. The highest and noblest thing that history can be is a good story. (laughs) So... Just keep listening, because in just a few minutes, you will know the story. And also, the story behind the story. But first, as Jim mentioned earlier, we're going to tell you a little bit about Jack the Ripper, 
just so all of you were on the same page with us. Jack the Ripper is the best known name for an unidentified serial killer who was active in the Whitechapel neighborhood located in the East End of London, England in 1888. This was a district that was largely populated by individuals who were poor and who had very little opportunity for economic advancement. The victims of Jack the Ripper were female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of Whitechapel. According to the London police at the time, there were at least 1,200 women working as prostitutes in the Whitechapel district, so it was easy for him to find victims. He is believed to have murdered at least five women, and possibly even twice that number. Interestingly, although Whitechapel was a neighborhood with a lot of poor people and a lot of crime, including violent crimes, it also happened to be a district with very few murders. So the lethal attacks by Jack the Ripper definitely stood out. They were a big deal. By the way, I will mention at this time that I am fully aware that in the present day, the term sex worker is preferred over the phrase prostitute. However, the events in this story take place in the 19th century, and the newspapers and all other written sources at the time all use the phrase prostitute. So that is what we are going to use, because it is simply historically accurate, and we are not going to whitewash the past. It is what it is. The name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written to a newspaper in September 1888 by someone claiming to be the killer. The letter basically taunted the police for not catching him, and it was signed Jack the Ripper. According to many experts, then and now, this letter was probably a hoax. Yet, it instantly became attached to the case, mainly because it accurately described the brutal method in which the killer murdered his victims. Typically, he would cut their throats and their chest area to rip out various internal organs. Sometimes, he would also slice other parts of their body. The police of London did all in their power to find and capture Jack the Ripper. There were numerous suspects from all ranks of society. Unfortunately, he was never found or caught. And to this day, he has never been successfully identified. In October of 1888, when the police were actively searching for Jack the Ripper, a reporter for a British newspaper, The London Sun, interviewed Thomas Burns, a New York police inspector, and the chief of the detective bureau. Inspector Burns was asked 
how he would handle the Whitechapel murders. He responded clearly and specifically. I would have gone right to work in a common sense way and not believed in mere theories. We do not have the autocratic powers of the London police, but if a crime is so plainly localized in one particular district, as in the case of these London murders, we would have most assuredly arrested a perpetrator in short order. With the great power of the London police, I would manufacture victims for the murderer. I would have taken 50 of the working girls of Whitechapel and covered the ground with them. Even if one became a victim, I'd get the murderer. The crimes are all of the same class, and I would have determined the class to which the murderer belonged. Ununiformed men should be scattered over the district so that nothing could escape them. But, <laughs> what's the good of talking? The murderer would have been caught long ago. However, a month later, in November 1888, Inspector Burns, in an interview with the Boston Globe, was unwilling to criticize his fellow officers in the London police. In my position as Inspector of Police and being in charge of the detective force of this city, I'd say that if we ever had in New York the misfortune of having such outrageous or any similar to those which were perpetrated at Whitechapel, I would consider it an act of great imprudence for me to advertise what schemes I would resort to or what action I should undertake with the detective force of this city for the purpose of apprehending and prosecuting the person who committed the offenses. Such a course would be precisely what the offender would want. It's not my province or wish to criticize the action or lack of action in others who have already a similar position elsewhere, always presuming that they do the very best they can under the circumstances. It is easier always to condemn others than it is to succeed in their special line of work and appreciating the difficulties that surround the London police in this dilemma. I have no desire or intention of sitting in judgment upon them. It was probably a good thing that Inspector Burns stepped back from his assertion that the New York police could easily catch the Ripper, because it would not be long before Burns and his small army of police detectives were just as stumped and empty-handed in trying to find the perpetrator of a Ripper murder in New York. Well, we could have gone into much more detail in regard to the story of Jack the Ripper, but it is not necessary, because the story of Jack the Ripper is not the main focus of this episode. We simply wanted to tell you just enough background information for you to be able to understand why and how Jack the Ripper became connected to the featured story in this episode. So, we will now move away from London, England in 1888 and into New York City, USA in 1891. In the mid to late 19th century, there were several neighborhoods in New York City which were deeply infested with crime, corruption, violence, prostitution, and a long, long list of other wickedness. These troubling problems were an outgrowth of overpopulation in these areas, which, in turn, led to high unemployment and severe poverty. And our story takes place in one such neighborhood, the waterfront district on the Lower East Side. We will be blunt. 
it was a wretched place to live. In fact, in 1891, according to one newspaper in New York, there was, quote, no other part of the city that so closely resembles the Whitechapel district of London, unquote. And within this neighborhood, there was a large brick building called the East River Hotel, also known as the Fourth Ward Hotel. It was located at the corner of Water Street and the bottom of Catherine Street, officially known as Catherine Slip, in between Cherry and South Street. This hotel is where the main portion of our story begins. There are contradictory descriptions of this hotel. According to historian Paul Begg, it was a large and grandiose building, but according to Charles W. Gardner, the hotel was, quote, a common brick building, although it was by no means ungraceful, unquote. Gardner was a professional private investigator in the late 19th century who was extremely familiar with the hotel and the area on the basis of his work. Now, despite the fact that there is some disagreement about the outer appearance of the building, we can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no dispute regarding the inside. According to Professor Begg, the hotel was sometimes mockingly called the House of All Drinks by the residents of the district because of a big sign that advertised the many types of alcoholic beverages that were available. In addition, the place was a notorious den for prostitutes and derelict sailors. According to an article published in 1891 in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, the women who lure sailors into the dive are wretched creatures. The only men other than drunken sailors who go to this place are petty thieves who help the women rob the sailors, unquote. Charles Gardner referred to the hotel as the very home of squalor. In 1894, Gardner wrote a book describing his most unusual case, and one part of his investigation required him to visit the hotel. Here is how Mr. Gardner described the place on the rainy evening that he went there, accompanied by two other men. There is, you see, no necessity for any subterfuge about the East River Hotel. When you enter the place, everybody about knows that you are there for vile purposes. And the concealment of vice is an unknown virtue in that part of New York. So I boldly opened the door and we stepped in. The room we'd entered was the bar room. It had a low ceiling and most unattractive. The floor was grimy with dirt. You could not tell whether you were walking on a dirt floor or one made of boards. At one side was a big iron stove. It had apparently never been blackened in its heat-giving career. The bar was opposite the stove. It was covered with dirt and stained yellow along its sides by innumerable quarts of tobacco juice, squirted upon by thousands of customers. It was charred and burnt on its surface by thousands of cheap cigars and cheaper cigarettes. 
behind the bar was a narrow shelf on which were bottles labeled in a mockery of the truth. Whiskey, gin, brandy, and so on. At the end of the bar was a big keg of stale beer, the kind that cost fifty cents for an eighth keg. A rancid cloud, violet in color and choking in its strength, hung in the room made by the smoke of tobacco pulled from the lips of patrons of the place. Through the smoke and vapor, pungent and sickening could be detected the almost indescribable odor of the long, worn, wet clothing upon dirty bodies. <sighs> it was beastly. Two policemen, in full uniform, sat at the bar, and were both inebriated. The bartender was a short, typical drink dispenser. His bullet head was covered with short, cropped hair. His face had the sallow tinge born of late hours, bad air, and bad liquor. He chewed tobacco, and so his lips were stained with a faint yellow, which made his mouth prominent and hideous. We made our way rapidly to what is known in that hotel as the Stulls. This means that a portion of one end of the barroom had been partitioned off into a space about twelve feet square. No chairs or tables were in the room. Not a decoration of any kind was on the plain wooden walls. The women customers and the depraved men they lured into the stalls were accustomed to stand up and drink until senses gave way. We walked into the room and there stood the most disreputable-looking lot of women I think I ever saw. The women were once of the east side middle class world, but now hopelessly lost and dirty. I never saw such dirt. It was caked and crusted on hands and faces. Hair tangled and matted around bloated rum-flushed faces. Scant clothing, soiled rags and ill-smelling, only half covering their gaunt bodies. Eyes gleaming with madness of delirium tremens. Faded from potent drugs, masqueraded as alcohol. Women lost to everything in the world, except a mere love for liquor. The women in the stall, despite their ill-favored unsightliness, greeted us with all signs of positive welcome. They fancied that we would buy them a drink, which was something which I did, at a cost of eighty cents for sixteen people. Yeah, it was five-cent whiskey that we drank. Our guests drank everything from stale beer to blue vitriol. Did you ever drink any five-cent whiskey? If you never did, you were a happy man. It is a drink that is simply awful. It tastes like a combination of kerosene oil, soft soap, alcohol, and the chemicals used in fire extinguishers. There was no untoward amount of curiosity on the part of the women as to who we were. They were all so debased, so deadened to everything but the charms of our liquor that, other than the making of a revolting proposition to us, nothing was said while we were in the stall. These women who had sunk so low that they were willing to sell their bodies in exchange for the price of a drink. The hotel was also used as an informal headquarters by men who specialized in drugging and robbing sailors. Sometimes, the victims would also be knocked out with alcohol or dope, then shanghaied and wake up on a merchant ship, miles away from any port. In addition, 
It is stated in the book Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury, published in 1929, that it was not uncommon for sailors to be robbed and killed while in their sleep with the bodies disposed of through the convenient trap doors of the hotel directly into the East River. So, listeners, you now have a taste of what the Fourth Ward Hotel was like during the early 1890s, the time period in which our story takes place. A woman named Carrie Brown was a resident of the neighborhood and a frequent visitor to the hotel. In 1891, she was 58 years old. In her youth, she had been a famed actress in England. But now, she spent most of her days and nights with drunken men in saloons and other dives, such as the Fourth Ward Hotel. In these places, she was known by the nickname Shakespeare because, in exchange for the price of a drink, she would flawlessly recite the monologue of any major female role in Hamlet, Macbeth, or The Merchant of Venice. For example... Act 3, Scene 2, The Merchant of Venice. Bassino, a young scoundrel, is living desperately in debt. The only way out for him is to marry the beautiful heiress, Portia. In order for him to win her hand in marriage, he must pass a test set by her father. He will be presented with three caskets. Only one holds a portrait of his beloved Portia. If he picks an empty casket, he will be discarded, unable to marry another. In the lines which I am about to expertly deliver to your ungrateful ears, Portia is overcome by her desire for Bassino and almost helps him cheat. <clears throat> I pray you, Tarry, pause a day or two before you hazard, for in choosing wrong, I lose your company. Therefore, forbear a while. There's something tells me, but it is not love. I would not lose you, and you know yourself. Hate counsels not in such a quality. But lest you should not understand me well, and yet a maiden hath no tongue but thought, I would detain you here some month or two before you venture for me. I could teach you how to choose right, but I am then forsworn, so I will never be, so you may miss me. But if you do, you'll make me wish a sin that I had been forsworn. Bestrew your eyes, they have overlooked me and divided me. One half of me is yours, the other half, mine own, I would say. But if mine, then yours. And so, all yours. Oh, these naughty times put bars between the owners and their rights. And so, through yours, not yours. Prove it so. Let fortune go to hell for it. Not I. Carrie Brown had immigrated to the U.S. at age 21. Because of an opportunity to star in the leading role in a hit play, she was paid a large sum for her talent, and the play later went on a tour through several major cities. When the play was in Boston, she happened to meet a ship captain 
who was only a few years older than her, at age 25. One thing led to another. They fell in love and got married. This was how she acquired the last name Brown. Carrie then left the world of theater. Her husband soon found a new job in the ship industry that did not require him to go to sea. They bought a small house in Boston and lived a happy life. But after about 10 years together, the captain unexpectedly passed away. Carrie never got over the tragedy. It soon led her to drowning her sorrows in alcohol. It became a lifelong addiction that took her downhill, to poverty and eventually prostitution, which became her main source of income. On the night of April 23rd, 1891, sometime between 10.30 and 11 p.m., Carrie Brown walked into the East River Hotel with a man at her side. The man was dressed in shabby clothing and appeared to be about half her age. He signed the hotel guest register as, quote, C. Niccolo and wife, unquote. I will mention simply as trivia, that although there is no dispute about this signature, I have seen at least five different spellings of this name in various articles and books. I have no idea which version is correct. In any event, Carrie and the man were led by a hotel clerk up to room 31 on the top floor. No more was heard from them, for the rest of the night. At 9 a.m. on the following morning, a hotel employee, a bellboy named Eddie Fitzgerald, knocked on the door to room 31. It was part of his job to check on each room to determine whether the occupants were still inside. There was no reply to his knock, and so Fitzgerald let himself in with a master key. He saw a woman was laying naked on the bed with her body brutally cut and mutilated. The man who had gone to the room with her was long gone. His departure had been unnoticed by anyone. A broken four-inch table knife was lying in a pool of blood by the bed. Listeners, we are not going to give a detailed or graphic description of her fatal injuries. Please feel free to use your imagination. But, for anyone who might want that type of specific information, we will list various reference books and articles in the show notes where you can get it. Anyway, let's return to our story. The bellboy immediately sent a message to the district police station the station captain quickly notified police headquarters and the coroner's office of what had happened. He raced over to the hotel with three detectives. They were soon joined by the coroner, followed by several more policemen, and a small crowd of newspaper reporters who regularly hung around the police station 
so they could be among the first to learn about the latest murder or other newsworthy crimes. The detectives checked the rooms on the floor, with the reporters trailing behind them. Interestingly, in the room next to room 31, they found a washbowl containing blood-stained water. At this point, the police ordered the hotel to be closed to the public, and no one was permitted to go near the upper floors. Rumors about the killing swept the city. The brutal nature of the slaying, together with the fact that the victim was a prostitute from a very poor neighborhood, led many people, perhaps even most of the public, to believe that it had been committed by Jack the Ripper while on a visit to the U.S. In fact, by the morning of April 25th, the story was on the front page of the New York Times with the headline, quote, Choked, then mutilated. A murder like one of Jack the Ripper's deeds. Repeated in an East Side lodging house. Unquote. This article, in addition to describing the murder, also declared that there had not been a case in years that had called forth so much detective talent. This statement was followed by a reminder of the boast made by Inspector Burns that it would be impossible for crimes such as those of Jack the Ripper to occur in New York without the murderer being found in short order. Burns certainly would have preferred that the public had not been reminded of his declaration, but he now knew that he needed to launch an all-out search. He flooded the district with detectives and patrolmen to fan out and find the perpetrator. However, at this point in time, it is important to note that the New York Police Department had a split personality. On the one hand, it liked to portray itself as tough and hard-nosed, yet fair and intelligent in dealing with crime in the community. For example, a police captain gave this short lecture to rookie police officers, giving them some very thoughtful guidance as to how they should handle crimes and criminals. Men, when you get your nightsticks, they're intended to be used on thieves and crooks. But don't use them on inoffensive citizens. By no means strike a man on the head. The insane asylums are filled with men whose condition has been caused by a skull injury. Strike them over the arms and legs, unless you're dealing with real bad crooks. Then, it doesn't make any difference whether they go to the insane asylum or to jail. They're enemies of society and our common foe. Protect the good people and treat the crooks rough. Thereby, you'll have the respect of your superiors and the citizens of New York. If there is danger, take a chance. The police of New York have a reputation you've got to uphold. Policemen make mistakes. They're human beings like everyone else. But we have no use for a coward. When you're in battle, 
and you'll be in plenty. Go to work with your nightstick. But be sure to keep your back against a wall so they can't jump you from behind. You'll meet a lot of drunks who are poor, hard-working men. Don't lock them up. If they show fight, they are certain parts of the body where you won't break any bones. Don't lose your head when one of these fellas calls you names. You can make a great many friends on your patrol by giving them a square deal. Make a friend of every good man and woman, and a bitter enemy of every crook, and you'll be a success on your beat. If every policeman would do that, there would be very little crime. <clears throat> However, many years later, a retired police officer recalled that the instructions given by the captain were almost immediately contradicted by his desk sergeant, who reprimanded him for bringing suspects in without first working them over with his nightstick. He then told him to take the arrested men down to the cellar and fix his oversight. Unfortunately, this type of mixed message was not the only problem of the New York City Police Department at the time. It was riddled with corruption and incompetence from top to bottom. Many policemen had gotten their jobs or promotions through bribes or political payoffs. So, the level of skill of any given police officer in 1891 was a complete toss of the dice. Some cops were top-notch. Others had no more brains than the buttons on their uniform. And this was the police department that had now been sent on the hunt to find and apprehend the killer of Carrie Brown. Attention listeners! If you own or are part of the management of a business or organization and you think it could benefit from being advertised or promoted on this show, then please send an email to ForgottenNewsPodcasts at gmail.com and simply make us an offer. Just be sure to type that as all one word, ForgottenNewsPodcasts at gmail.com. And together... Let's see what we can do. The search for the murderer was led by Inspector Burns, a mostly self-educated Irish immigrant who had joined the police force in 1863 and rose through the ranks with grit and determination. He had impressive investigative skills, which ultimately led to him being promoted to inspector and head of the Detective Bureau in 1880. He ran this department with an iron fist in more ways than one, until he retired from the force in 1895. In 1886, Burns published a book with the title Professional Criminals of America. It contains the photographs and personal histories of the numerous thieves, con artists, and killers of this time. 
you may be amazed to learn that it has never gone out of print. In a nutshell, Burns was tough, unscrupulous, egotistical, and utterly ruthless. He believed crooks had no rights that a police officer was obligated to respect. Burns was extremely effective and imaginative as an interrogator. He invented the phrase, the third degree, to describe his methods of obtaining useful and usable information from criminal suspects. And these methods often included rough physical force and even torture if he deemed it necessary to make a subject confess or to make a witness provide a tip. It did not take long for the New York police, under the harsh whip of Thomas Burns, to have numerous men under arrest in connection with the murder of Carrie Brown. However, unlike the very vocal public commentary which Burns had made in connection with the murders by Jack the Ripper in London, he was extremely tight-lipped in regard to the search for the killer of the Lady Shakespeare in New York. In response to questions from reporters as to whether he had a plan for capturing the murderer, he stated, I have no theories for publication. Burns would sometimes be so exasperated by all the questions to the point that his typical response was simply, Ugh, I refuse to answer. But during the week following the killing, Burns and his vast crew of detectives and patrolmen were not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. He was looking closely at each of the men who had been arrested in the aftermath of the murder. A tip from an employee of the hotel quickly led to the arrest of a frequent customer, George Frank, a man formerly known as Amir Ben Ali, whose nickname was Frenchie. He was an Algerian of Arab descent. He somehow communicated to the officers that he was unable to speak or understand English, which may or may not have been true. The hot tip that the killer might have been a neighborhood man named Frenchie soon led to the somewhat humorous discovery that the district had at least two residents with that nickname. And the result was that the police quickly arrested two men who were both known as Frenchie. It soon became obvious that only one of them had anything to do with the case, or the hotel, which led to the newspapers having some fun at the expense of Inspector Burns, with jokes about Frenchie number one and Frenchie number two. Eventually, Burns was asked why he had not released a man who had been mistakenly arrested. Burns responded, How do you know that I have not? In any event, the focus of the investigation soon fell upon the Frenchie who was often seen at the hotel. In fact, on the night of the murder, he had been the only occupant of room 33, right across the hall from Carrie Brown in room 31. Five days later, Inspector Burns announced 
that Frenchie was the killer. He admitted Frenchie had not been the unknown man who had accompanied Carrie to the room. That man had left the hotel sometime during the night for reasons known only to him. Instead, according to Burns, after the unknown man had left the room, Frenchie had creeped across the hall, entered room 31, then robbed and killed Carrie Brown, and then snuck back into his own room. There were blood drops on the floor of room 31, and in the hall between rooms 31 and 33. There were also blood marks on both sides of the door to room 33, as if the door had been opened and closed by bloody fingers. In addition, blood stains were discovered on the floor of room 33, as well as on a chair, the mattress, and the blanket. It was also announced that scrapings from Frenchie's fingernails indicated the presence of blood. Frenchie gave differing explanations for the various locations in which blood was found, all of which were determined to be false. Frenchie was arraigned on April 30th and was held in jail until his trial on June 24th, 1891. He could not afford a lawyer, so the court appointed Abraham Levy as his attorney. This would be the first murder case which Levy would handle. He would eventually go on to represent more than 300 defendants in his long career. The court had somehow found an interpreter who had immigrated to the U.S. from the same village in Algeria as Frenchie. This gave him the ability to assist in his defense. Inspector Burns and four police officers testified for the prosecution, and so did numerous witnesses which the prosecution had found among the lowest levels of the population of New York. These witnesses seemed to have no purpose except to prove to the court that Frenchie had been living an unsavory life, as well as the fact that he was a frequent resident of the East River Hotel and had sometimes been seen wandering through the building at night. Three medical experts testified that a chemical analysis of his fingernail scrapings and of the blood stains on the bed in room 31, as well as the blood on the hallway floor, the door to room 33, the inside of room 33, all showed intestinal contents of food elements, all in the same degree of digestion, all exactly identical. These experts declared that this meant the blood stains resulted from blood that had come from the abdominal injuries of Carrie Brown. In contrast, the defense had to rely on the defendant, who was a terrible witness. Frenchie sometimes seemed to understand English, but at other times, he seemed unable to understand the questions, even after they had been translated into his native language. Frenchie consistently and repeatedly denied killing Shakespeare. Nevertheless, he was convicted 
of second-degree murder. And on July 10, 1891, he was sentenced to life in prison. The belief on the street was that Frenchie had been framed. There were two widespread rumors. One was that the murderer, a blonde sailor, had left New York on a ship that had sailed to Japan or China. The other rumor was that Shakespeare actually had been murdered by Jack the Ripper. This was not a ridiculous belief. Steamships had greatly reduced the travel time from London to New York to a week or less. Captain Richard O'Connor, who was in charge of the police station for the district and who was described in newspapers at the time as being one of the oldest and sharpest detectives in the department, was quoted during the investigation as saying, It's Jack's work. To a dot. In addition, many experts on the mystery of Jack the Ripper believe that Jack had indeed accepted the challenge given by Inspector Burns. And when the cops weren't able to find the real murderer, they simply decided to pin the slaying on Frenchie in order to save the professional honor of the New York police and Inspector Thomas Burns. Nearly 11 years later, in 1902, Governor Benjamin Odell received a pardon application on behalf of Frenchie based on new evidence. The application contained evidence that the unknown man who had been seen with Carrie Brown had apparently worked for several weeks in the spring of 1891 at Cranford, New Jersey, about 15 miles away from the city. The man had been absent from Cranford on the night of the murder and then disappeared entirely a few days later. The objects that had been found in his room included a brass key with the number 31 and a very bloody shirt. This key matched the keys to the East River Hotel. It is undisputed that the murderer had locked the door to room 31. No evidence had ever connected Frenchie to the key. In addition, a reporter who had visited the hotel on the morning after the murder, but prior to the arrival of the coroner, signed a sworn affidavit that there had been no blood on the door of either room or in the hallway. The governor clearly saw from the submitted evidence that the bloodstains had apparently been unwittingly left by the police and other men who had assisted in the removal of the bloody body of Carrie Brown. Even the police had testified that there was no blood on or anywhere near the lock or knob to the door to room 31, which the murderer had unlocked, opened, closed, and relocked. Yet, the alleged guilt of Frenchie was based on evidence suggesting he had snuck out of room 31, dripping blood on the floor, 
and then smeared blood on the door, the floor, and the bed of room 33. Between the weakness of the old evidence and the strength of the new, the governor issued a pardon. And so, Frenchie was released on April 16, 1902, after being falsely convicted and locked up for a total of nearly 11 years. Eight years later, in 1910, Inspector Thomas Burns passed away. He was discovered to have had a very ugly secret life during his years on the police force. He died as an extremely rich man with the modern-day equivalent of millions of dollars in money and real estate, which he had acquired through taking bribes and other crooked activities that not only ruined his reputation, but also that of the police department at the time. Ugh. I will also mention a small bit of trivia in regard to my research for this story. When I started looking through books and articles, I kept seeing a quote allegedly stated in 1888 by Inspector Burns in regard to Jack the Ripper. If these murders had happened in New York, the killer would have been in the jug in 36 hours. But no one ever gave a source that was from the year 1888. Now, one time I saw an article written by a very respected historian, which said that the quote by Burns was in a news report on the front page of the New York Times on such and such date. Well, I found the article, which definitely mentions Inspector Burns, but it contains no quote from him. None. That is so strange. Oh, well. I have one more bit of trivia to add. The alleged murder of Carrie Brown at the hands of Jack the Ripper were part of the plot in the book Sacred Evil, written in 2011 by the actress Heather Graham. Hmm. Also, in case anyone might be curious, the East River Hotel closed in 1894 two years after the death of Carrie Brown. The publicity surrounding the murder apparently kept so many regular customers away that the hotel was unable to stay in business due to the loss in income. I don't know what happened to the building after that, but it definitely no longer exists. In the present day, there is an apartment complex, an office building, and a playground at the corner where the hotel used to stand. The final thing we will mention in regard to this story is that to this day, no one knows who really killed Carrie Brown or for that matter, any of the victims of Jack the Ripper. And with that being said, we are now at the end of the story of the murder of Shakespeare in New York City. And now, listeners, we will present the latest edition of our new ongoing feature, Police Blotter and Court News. 
in which we bring you stories of small-time crooks and a lot of other random folks who, for one reason or another, were pulled into the jaws of the justice system a century or more ago. And this particular segment will be narrated for you exactly as it was published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer on June 1st, 1888. <clears throat> now, if you are a careful listener, you may have already noticed that this was the same year as the Ripper murders. But thankfully, that has nothing to do with anything. There was no serial killer roaming the streets of Cleveland in 1888. <laughs> we simply decided purely for fun to feature a column of random ordinary crime news from the same year. Maybe think of it as sort of a palate cleanser. <laughs> However, before we begin the segment, we will give a short warning to listeners. Please be aware, in the police blotter and court news segment on this episode, there will be brief mentions of violence, drunkenness, pornography, theft, and prostitution. If you think that any of those topics might trigger a negative emotional response, then you should probably just skip ahead to about seven minutes from now. Our guest narrator for the police blotter and court news segment on this episode is Penny, the host of the Murder She Spoke podcast. Police blotter and court news. Municipal Court, Cleveland, Ohio, June 1st, 1888. Order on the court. Order on the court. Charles Black and Robert Ridley were charged with keeping gambling rooms. They pled guilty and each was fined $50 and court costs. James Smith, a very old offender, was charged with being intoxicated in public. In response to a question from the judge, he modestly said that he had been arrested once before, but intimated it was years ago, about the time of the last pharaoh's reign, and got off with a small fine of $3 and court costs. A man named Jack Kilroy was called before the judge. His head was tied up in a handkerchief, and his eyes looked like small chunks of coal. The judge gave him a hard stare for a minute, then spoke. What were you doing yesterday? Decorating, sir. Yes, I guess you were. Who were you decorating, when you were decorating? Fantasy, the biler maker. It was a grave affair. Undoubtedly. Well, since you ably helped on the decorative service yesterday, I will be lenient. Your sentence is two dollars in court costs. Next case. Henry Robb, the driver of a streetcar on Broadway Avenue, was fined one dollar in court costs for obstructing the street by refusing to move his streetcar out of the way during the parade on Wednesday. William Monkman of Center Street was fined $5 in court costs for intoxication. Patrolman Gavin, who made the arrest, wanted to charge him with assault and battery, but the prosecutor, who knows Gavin, would not issue papers for the charge. 
R.C. Brown of 25 Huron Street was charged with petty larceny in stealing a jersey vest from Mary Doe. John Fisher was charged with stealing two bottles of whiskey from a horse cart on Lakeshore Boulevard. Both cases were dismissed by the prosecutor. No proof, no case. Frank Robinson and Charles Gorman fought almost to a finish yesterday in a vacant lot near River Street. When an officer arrived, that finished the fight. Each was fined $5 in court costs for raising a disturbance. William Berry of 107 Chestnut Street was fined $1 in court costs for taking a wooden board that belonged to H.B. Payne. Barry had claimed that whilst walking home one night, he stumbled against the board, picked it up, and carried it home for kindling. Frank Bentley, who resides on Wall Street, was charged with disorderly conduct for having given an obscene picture to Miss Belle Odell, a girl 18 years of age. The case was ordered to be dismissed upon payment of court costs. Bentley, who is a man of 28 years, should already have known to behave himself better. Frank P. Mitchell of 73 Mulberry Street was arrested Wednesday on a charge of grand larceny and stealing $55 from Patrick Riley. Mitchell and Riley informed the court that they had reached an understanding, so the case was then dismissed by the prosecutor. Annabelle and Julia O'Connor, who are twin sisters and pretty, were charged with operating a house of ill fame on Erie Street. They are only 21 years of age, yet both of them have been notorious local prostitutes for several years. In the courtroom, they claimed that the place was merely a boarding house. In response, Patrolman O'Reilly, who made the arrest, stated that he had observed nearly a dozen female residents in various states of undress. There were also several men who took off running through the rear exit after a girl yelled that the police were at the front door. In addition, Annabelle and Julia failed to give any evidence that the place was actually a boarding house rather than a brothel. The judge found them guilty of the charge, and they were each fined $10 in court costs, despite their repeated efforts to use their feminine charms to convince the judge that they were innocent. Elmer and Leander McCartney, arrested Wednesday morning by Detective Sprosty, were found guilty of stealing clothing valued at $19 from John J. Becker, a resident of Wheeling, West Virginia. He fell in with the McCarty boys while on a visit to Ohio, and he, being a stranger, they took advantage. Each brother was fined $10 and court costs. Michael Riley, who lives at 35 Division Street, appeared in court on the charge of assault and battery upon his wife, Maggie. Testimony showed that on Saturday afternoon, May 26, Michael asked his wife for money with which to go marketing. She would not give him the money. He became irate and gave her a shoe. This caused Miss Riley to fall upon the floor and bruise her hand and arm. The judge stated that he did not think that Riley meant to harm his wife, but that he was nevertheless guilty of assault and battery. He sentenced him to a fine of $5 in court costs. John Lechescalis, alias James Fox, a young man who claims to reside on Portage Street, was found Wednesday night on Broadway Avenue, having in his possession a loaded revolver. He was arrested and brought to court on Thursday morning, where he gave as an excuse for carrying the revolver 
that a man had threatened to kill him and he wanted to protect himself. Fox has a number of knife cuts on his body and according to the statement of patrolman Riley, it appeared as though he had been in a fight. The judge sentenced Fox to a fine of $5 in court costs for carrying the revolver. The court is adjourned. And that brings us to the end of the police blotter and court news column of June 1st, 1888. We hope you enjoyed having this brief opportunity to spend some time on the side streets and dark alleys of yesteryear. And let's just hope that your great-great-grandma or grandpa wasn't any of the people that were mentioned. By the way, listeners, we would very much like to be able to tell police blotter stories from the 19th century newspapers from where you live. So if you have the time and ability, just email ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com and we promise to use it as soon as we can. But at this time, we would like again to thank Penny from Murder She Spoke for being the narrator of the police blotter and court news column on this episode. And also Dennis Sarah from Evil Podcast for voicing the introductory title, as well as Pete Lutz of the Narada Radio Company and 63 Audio. Find us at naradaradio.libsyn.com and Austin Beach and Scott Phillips of Audio Oblivious Productions for their voice roles on the segment. In addition, in regard to our featured story on this episode, we would also like to give special thanks to Emma, co-host of the Slaughter podcast, causing Shakespeare to turn over in his grave. (laughs) We would also like to thank Sam Culper of Breakers Podcast. Zane Sexton, the shadowy slicker is a noir set in 1967 Cleveland, Ohio. You can learn more by going to Twitter at Shadowy Slicker. You can check out my podcast, Yabbering with Zane, at bit.do forward slash YWZ. Again, that's bit.do forward slash YWZ. And last but not least, Owen McGuire, and you can find me on Twitter at B-U-D-D-A-H-0047, and then I do occasionally stream on Mixer, which is at mixer.com forward slash the same, B-U-D-D-A-H-0047. Thanks for supplying their voices on the featured story in this episode. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. And if you liked the episode or anything else you've heard on this show, then please be sure to go to iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe to the Forgotten News Podcast. It's important because it's the way that we move up on the charts. We prefer a five-star review, by the way. (laughs) It definitely helps us to attract new listeners. So, thanks in advance for your ratings and reviews. And, as always, 
We would love to hear your comments, feedback, opinions, ideas, thoughts, and anything else you might like to say in regard to the podcast. Please feel free to email the Forgotten News Podcast at gmail.com, but take care to type that as if it were all one word. There are no hyphens, dashes, or underscores. We also have a Facebook page. It's another place where you can make comments, be our guest, and just do it. In addition, you can also contact and follow us on Twitter and give us your thoughts about almost anything. Just type Forgotten News Podcast as three words into the search box, whether on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find us. It's really that easy. But please take note, the Twitter handle for our podcast is at NewsForgotten and not Forgotten News. Jim tweets and answers tweets from there. But if any of our listeners would like to follow or contact me on Twitter, my handle is at Kit Karen, spelled K-I-T-C-A-R-E-N, as if it were all one word. I'd love to hear from you. And I promise you'll hear back from me. <laughs> Please feel free to use any of those methods to interact with us. We love hearing from our listeners. Hey, good news, everybody. You can now get a t-shirt, mug, tote bag, notebook, pillow, or phone case with the logo of the Forgotten News Podcast. Just go to tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C dot com. And use the search bar to type Forgotten News Podcast as if it was all one word. And you'll not only have a nice t-shirt or whatever, but every sale gives us a few bucks to offset our time and expense. And it's the only way that I'll know you actually care. (laughs) So here's what I'd like you to do. Show us some love. Just go to tpublic.com and use the search feature to type Forgotten News Podcast as one word. Then make a purchase. The rest is up to you. I think that is pretty much everything for this episode of the podcast. (sighs) Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And remember, history is no mystery. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. It should be no shock to anybody.
that some works of art come from the bowels of hell. The criminal is the artist. The police detective is only the critic.